0: It's Monday, October 21st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney was trying all weekend to walk back comments he made at a press conference where he seemed to say there was a quid pro quo in holding up military aid to Ukraine. Also, Defense Secretary Mark Esper said that troops leaving Syria will not come home. Instead, they will be going to Western Iraq. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for all the big political news over the weekend. Next, we check in on the Great American Cannabis Experiment. Now, almost seven years old, it was in 2012 that Washington and Colorado chose to make cannabis legal for recreational use. But with every new state that legalizes, the contradictions between state and federal laws become more apparent. While marijuana continues to remain illegal under the Controlled Substances Act, The cannabis industry is growing and generated over $10 billion in sales last year. What all this means is that some Americans are making money producing and selling cannabis, while others are being arrested and charged for the same activity. Natalie Fertig, reporter at Politico, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It is legitimate for the president to want to to know what's going on with the ongoing investigation into the server. Everybody acknowledges that, at least I think most normal people do. It's completely legitimate to ask about that. Number two, it's legitimate to tie the aid to corruption. It's legitimate to tie the aid to foreign aid from other countries. That's what I was talking about with a three. Can I see how people took that the wrong way? Absolutely. But I never said there was a quid pro quo because there is. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. The two stories that keep consuming the Trump White House right now are what's going on in Syria between Turkey and the Kurds, and obviously the impeachment inquiry, looking into the president's dealing with Ukraine, holding up military aid there so that they could look into the Bidens and to this DNC server that people think is in Ukraine. Let's start off with Syria right now, because the Pentagon chief just said that the U.S. troops that are leaving Syria are moving to Western Iraq. I know the president has been saying that we're getting soldiers out of the area. It's not really happening like that, but what is the latest there?
1: We have to remember that the area still remains on the edge of stability, and that what we see the Pentagon doing is trying to make decisions that allow them to continue to be in the area, to try to create some level of stability, especially should things start to devolve even worse than they are now the president has been saying he's going to bring these american troops who've been in syria helping the kurds home that is not going to be the case they are headed into western iraq the belief being that they can sort of stay at a safe distance where they won't be involved in the fighting but still close by if for some reason they are needed since the president signaled to begin with that he would remove troops from this area we've really seen it devolve quickly I think, to the surprise
0: of even President Trump. In the meantime, the Kurds have evacuated one of the Syrian towns there, but there's still more for them to to leave. I think this uh, ceasefire, this pause in military actions, is supposed to last until Tuesday evening. In the meantime, Defense Secretary Mark Esper said that the troops in western Iraq are going to have two missions. One is to help defend Iraq, and two is the counter-ISIS mission just basically to prevent any type of resurgence there. Let's move on to the impeachment stuff that's been happening. Mick Mulvaney, the White House, the acting White House chief of staff, kind of stepped in it last week in a press conference. He basically said that there was a quid pro quo in holding up the military aid to Ukraine so that they could look into this uh, server that they think is in Ukraine. Then he had to walk it all back. Tell us a little bit about that. It's a bit
1: of a conspiracy theory. There's never been any real evidence that this server is even in Ukraine, that the server was involved in some of Hillary Clinton's emails. So we're dating back a number of years and previous controversies. But it seems that President Trump wanted the Ukrainians to investigate this server. And as Mick Mulvaney said on Friday, it was one of the conditions. It would seem that they were withholding aid reporters at his press conference immediately were like, you just described a quid pro quo that right. you wanted. The president wanted an investigation. Now, as you said, Mulvaney has spent a lot of time trying to walk this back and in, in the intervening days. has have insisted that asking about the survey was a completely reasonable thing, but the aid was withheld as the White House has continued to contend because of corruption broadly and because they wanted other countries to provide aid.
0: Mick Mulvaney went on to Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace, and Chris Wallace was pressing him pretty hard on this. He said, hey, this is exactly what you said. Any reasonable person is going to think that that's exactly what you said. There was a quid pro quo there. And Mick Mulvaney, I mean, the defense is that, well, you guys all misunderstood me. You didn't really hear what I said. I never said quid pro quo. That's the defense the entire time. Just this is going to happen. This kind of stuff happens. It's all normal business.
1: That's right. Mulvaney is making the argument that administrations have long had conditions for foreign countries to receive aid. President Obama had conditions. It's a common way that the U.S. gets other countries to agree to our policies. The difference here and and what Trump's critics are saying is these weren't conditions to help America or even help the country in question. These were conditions to politically try to help Donald Trump. And and that's why it's different than sort of business as
0: usual. The other thing that Mick Mulvaney was defending was the president reversed his plan to hold next year's G7 summit at his Doral Golf Club in Florida. Mick Mulvaney, that's why he had that press conference in the beginning. It was to announce that, and uh, there was a, a lot of backlash to that. People were saying, well, the president is just going to keep enriching himself with this. This is going to benefit him, even though the president said he was going to do it at cost. But that plan has now been scrapped.
1: That's right. That whole Mulvaney press conference last week, it seems to have all been undone uh, by Sunday afternoon. This has really caused quite a bit of criticism, not just from Democrats, but from Republicans as well. The president is really in a difficult time. This impeachment has really dogged his campaign and his administration. um, And he needs all of the Republicans he can get to be behind him if he's going to survive it. And we've seen two episodes now uh, in the intervening days where he's Lost support of his party instead of gaining it. So, adding maybe to his problems instead of improving
0: them. And uh, just again on Mick Mulvaney, uh, you know, saying he, in that interview with Chris Wallace, he said, at the end of the day, the president still thinks he's in the hospitality business. I I mean, that just sounds like at the end of the day, he's still trying to make money for his own businesses despite being the president. Uh, You know, and he walked it back too. He says, he's not in that business anymore. That's where he came from. But yeah, Mick Mulvaney just not having a good week at all. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: We, at this point, have 46 states that have some sort of cannabis laws that are in conflict with the Controlled Substances Act. 33 of those have actual markets either medical or cannabis, which means taxes and regulations and producers and distributors and growers.
0: Joining us now is Natalie Fertig, covering cannabis policy for Politico. Thanks for joining us, Natalie. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about the Great American Cannabis Experiment. States all across the country are legalizing cannabis in different ways, decriminalizing, legalizing for medical use, legalizing for recreational use. But there's this one big discrepancy is that it's still a Schedule One drug under the Controlled Substance Act for the federal government. So it kind of puts a lot of states in a bind when they're trying to operate businesses, get loans, use banks, even transport some of the product because federally it's still illegal. Natalie, tell us a little bit about this whole thing.
2: The reason that we decided to write this story is because it's impossible to look at federal cannabis policy without looking at the federal government's relationship with the states. And the legalization of medical marijuana and now recreational marijuana on the state level is really unprecedented. There isn't anything comparative in American history in terms of states legalizing creating entire economic systems and markets and regulations for something that's federally illegal. There are other times in history where states and the federal government have been at conflict. Obviously, the Civil War is the most notable of those, but also the entire civil rights era was just one of the longest conflicts between the federal and state government. It was not as widespread, even though I would say it was a bigger conflict. We, at this point, have 46 States that have some sort of cannabis laws that are in conflict with the Controlled Substances Act, 33 of those have actual markets, either medical or cannabis, which means taxes and regulations and producers and distributors and growers. The other states that equal up to the 47 just have legal CBD use for some medical issues. But that puts only four states that are actually in compliance with the Controlled Substances Act right now. And that's just totally unprecedented. So it creates these huge conflicts. And most of them really were not anticipated because there is nothing like this. Sometimes people try to compare this to alcohol prohibition, but that was really federally illegal. I mean it was federally legal, whereas this is coming from the states up. There's nothing that regulators can look to as precedent before this. So as states have legalized things, they run into so many different hurdles as they discover, oh, this is a problem. What can we do about it? Oh, wait, we can't do anything about it. The federal government (laughs) is the only one that can do anything about that little thing.
0: Right. And there is tons of money in the industry. Billions in sales are generated. Hundreds of thousands of people have been employed. States themselves have been making millions, hundreds of millions of dollars In taxes and places where it's been legalized, you wrote about one specific instance, the Green Lady Dispensary on Nantucket Island. Tell us a little bit about that, because that kind of illustrates pretty perfectly all the discrepancies between state and then federal laws and how difficult it is to operate a cannabis business.
2: So Nicole Campbell owns the Green Lady Dispensary on Nantucket Island. And what's interesting about Nantucket Island and also Martha's Vineyard falls into the same category as this is they're part of the state of Massachusetts. They both legalized cannabis. They had pretty high numbers in favor of cannabis legalization. I think it was in the high 60s and low 70s in some areas of both of those islands. But they're so far off the coast of Massachusetts that there's federal water that lies between the mainland of the state of Massachusetts and Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard, the two islands. And because marijuana is federally illegal, even though that's still within state, it's kind of classified as going out of state, or you have to go through federal water to get back into the other portion of the state. So Nicole and her business cannot source product from mainland Massachusetts, typically dispensaries don't grow their own product and process it and create edibles. Even if they do some, a couple products in-house, they're not doing their entire inventory themselves. That's just a lot to produce. And so she has to do everything in-house. She also has to do testing in-house, which a special provision was created by the state so that any dispensaries that open on the islands can do that. They just can't test for all the same things that you would test in a big scientific testing facility. These testing facilities that exist on the mainland, but they've kind of gotten it to the point where they know that they're going to have really the important basics covered. And so she does that testing at home. But yeah, she can't even send samples back to the mainland for
0: testing. Yeah. And it's just so crazy because as you said, you know, a regular cannabis business dispensary can source all that stuff from different providers. She can't, so she has to do everything everything she has to manage all the licenses for it it's just a lot for one business to do all on its own considering all the different discrepancies there so the big weed experiment now is about 7 years old that's when in 2012 voters in Washington and Colorado chose to make cannabis in their states legal for recreational use but As we've been saying, there's just a lot of different things. Because of all these federal restrictions, research on marijuana can't really be done to maximum effect. People that want to do research have to get federally approved marijuana that comes from the University of Mississippi, I think it is. Banking regulations is a huge one. Talk a little bit about that.
2: So there's so much in... Finance. When the Articles of Confederation were ended and the United States Constitution was started in the seventeen eighties, each state gave up its rights to finance it was one of the big things that was really creating a lot of difficulties amongst the states under the Articles of Confederation. So money is a big thing that the federal government controls. So banking services are really hard for cannabis businesses. To get just to open a bank account is really difficult there's been credit unions and some smaller community banks in a lot of these states that have opened their doors but even then usually canvas businesses have to pay a couple hundred dollars a month for that bank account because the bank is taking on a lot more risk with their businesses because the bank is now accepting money that is technically still classified like a drug cartel money <laughs> yeah I- so it, you know It's become a big enough issue that this is a thing that the federal government is starting to move on. The Safe Banking Act has passed the U.S. House of Representatives and Republicans, specifically Idaho Senator Crapo, who is the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, has said he would take it up and mark it up in the Senate, which is kind of unexpected because his state is one of those four that is actually in compliance with the Controlled Substances Act. So people were saying, what is his motivation for doing this? But There's a lot of banks in his state, and the banking industry has really gotten behind this bill because they want banks to know what they should do with the money, to have clear regulations, to be less in fear of being shut down or being investigated by the federal government. So that's kind of a big focus, but there's all these other things, too. One aspect that people talk about, but it really hasn't had as much focus on Capitol Hill as the Safe Banking Act is Tax Code 280E, which essentially is this tax code that says, hey, if you are in violation of the Controlled Sentences Act, if you're earning money that is federally illegal, you're a drug cartel, you can't write off your business expenses. Right. Like, sorry, your business is illegal, so no, you can't write off the notepads that you buy to take notes for your illegal business. And it makes sense except for that states have now legalized these businesses. So these businesses are completely legal in each state, but they can't write off any of their business expenses. I talked to one farmer out in Oregon who broke even last year, but he still owed the IRS $200,000 in federal income taxes because he couldn't write off so many of his business expenses.
0: And because it's illegal that way, you still got to pay your taxes, obviously, but they have to do it in cash which is kind of that other angle, you know, it leaves a lot of these yeah. businesses susceptible to theft and robberies. And I, I think in that specific example you were talking about, they had to make arrangements for an armored truck to pick up the money so just so they can make their tax payments.
2: That was actually another farmer I talked to in California, but that's pretty much all farmers that are doing this. In the city of Yorick, California, they were telling me that they like set up specific times when people can drop off the money because there
0: has to be so much extra security
2: so it's something that both cities and dispensary owners or farmers are dealing with.
0: And what's been the big major hesitance on the part of the federal government to either remove marijuana from the Schedule One classification that it has or just kind of change the laws altogether? I know Senator Mitch McConnell has said he's not going to take up anything that has to do with marijuana. I know that's a big hurdle there, but what's the big hesitance?
2: The simple answer is a handful of senators like Senator Mitch McConnell. The way the Senate works is if a committee chairman does not want to take up a bill, that bill is not taken up and it does not make it to the floor. And if the majority leader, Mitch McConnell, does not want to take up a bill, it does not come to the floor. The more complicated answer, though, you know, a lot of people say, well, if. Mitch McConnell decided that we wanted to legalize cannabis. Cannabis will be legal tomorrow. It'll be a very complicated process, yeah. even if that ever comes up. We're looking in the House right now. There's a couple different descheduling bills. And the House is Democratic-led. And there's been a lot of movement in favor of cannabis descheduling, which is legalization and descheduling are the same thing. But, you know, within that context, there's still a ton of questions. And kind of how we saw... New Jersey and New York, there was a lot of momentum, a lot of desire to legalize cannabis this past year. There were arguments and conversations even within the pro-legalization world that ended up killing both of those bills. It's not that that couldn't happen in the House even. There's different arguments right now over... How do we do criminal justice reform? How do we do social equity? And then also the other side of how do we regulate this? Is this the FDA? Is this the TTB, the Alcohol and Tobacco Bureau? There's a lot of questions past just taking it off the Controlled Substances Act. So there's a chance that the House could move on that but the current state of the senate is probably not going to happen this congress i'm never going to say never but it's probably not going to happen (laughs) right but even if it did happen there will still be so many questions that it's not a done deal
0: natalie fertig covering cannabis policy for politico thank you very much for joining us
2: yeah thank you so much for having me
0: that's it for today join us on social media